Okay, so beginning at chapter 17 of Revelation. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits by many waters. With her, king, with her, the kings of the earth committed adultery, and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. Then the angel carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. There I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet and was glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. She held a golden cup in her hand, filled with the abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. The name written on her forehead was a mystery. Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of the abominations of the earth. I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of God's holy people, the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. When I saw her, I was greatly astonished. Then the angel said to me, Why are you astonished? I will explain to you the mystery of the woman and of the beast she rides, which has the seven heads and ten horns. The beast which you saw once was, now is not, and yet will come up out of the abyss and go to its destruction. The inhabitants of the earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the creation of the world will be astonished when they see the beast because it once was, now is not, and yet will come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven hills on which the woman sits. They are also seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, the other has not yet come, but when he does come, he must remain for only a little while. The beast who once was, and now is not, is an eighth king. He belongs to the seven and is going to his destruction. The ten horns you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but who for one hour will receive authority as kings along with the beast. They have one purpose and will give their power with authority to the beast. They will wage war against the lamb, but the lamb will triumph over them because he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and with him will be his called, chosen and faithful followers. Then the angel said to me, The waters you saw, where the prostitute sits, are peoples, multitudes, nations and languages. The beast and the ten horns you saw will hate the prostitute. They will bring her to ruin and leave her naked. They will eat her flesh and burn her with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to accomplish his purpose by agreeing to hand over to the beast their royal authority until God's words are fulfilled. The woman you saw is the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven. 
He had great authority, and the earth was illuminated by his splendour. With a mighty voice he shouted, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling for demons and a haunt for every impure spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable animal. For all the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries. The kings of the earth commit adultery with her, and the merchants of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries. Then I heard another voice from heaven say, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues. For her sins are piled up to heaven, and God has remembered her crimes. Give back to her as she has given. Pay her back double for what she has done. Pour her a double portion from her own cup. Give her as much torment and grief as the glory and luxury she gave herself. In her heart she boasts, I sit enthroned as a queen, I am not a widow, I will never warn. mourn. Then, therefore, in one day her plagues will overtake her, death, mourning and famine. She will be consumed by fire, for mighty is the Lord God who judges her. When the kings of the earth, who committed adultery with her and shared her luxury, see the smoke of her burning... They will weep and mourn over her. Terrified at her torment, they will stand far off and cry, Woe, woe to you, great city, you mighty city of Babylon. In one hour, your doom has come. So we're continuing on from where we stopped. And now we're up to chapter 18, verse 11. And we're going through to 19, verse 4. Then the merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her because no one buys their cargoes anymore. Cargoes of gold, silver, precious stones and pearls, fine linen, purple, silk and scarlet cloth, every sort of citron wood and articles of every kind made of ivory, costly wood, bronze, iron and marble, cargoes of cinnamon and spice, of incense, myrrh and frankincense, of wine and olive oil, of fine flour and wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and carriages, and human beings sold as slaves. They will say, the fruit you long for is gone from you. All your luxury and splendour have vanished, never to be recovered. The merchants who sold these things and gained their wealth from her will stand far off, terrified at her torment. They will weep and mourn and cry out, Woe, woe to you, great city, dressed in fine linen, purple and scarlet, and glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. In one hour... Such great wealth has been brought to ruin. Every sea captain and all who travel by ship, the sailors and all who earn their living from the sea will stand far off. When they see the smoke of her burning, they will exclaim, was there ever, city, was there ever a city like this great city? They will throw dust on their heads and with weeping and mourning cry out, woe, woe to you, great city, 
where all who had ships on the sea became rich through her wealth. In one hour she has been brought to ruin. Rejoice over her, you heavens. Rejoice, you people of God. Rejoice, apostles and prophets. For God has judged her with the judgment that she imposed on you. Then a mighty angel picked up a boulder the size of a large millstone and threw it into the sea and said, With such violence, the great city of Babylon will be thrown down, never to be found again. The music of the harpists and musicians, pipers and trumpeters, will never be heard in you again. No worker of any trade will ever be found in you again. The sound of a millstone will never be heard in you again. The light of a lamp will never shine in you again. The voice of the bridegroom and bride will never be heard in you again. Your merchants were the people, were the world's important people. By your magic spell, all the nations were led astray. In her was found the blood of the prophets and of God's holy people, of all who have been slaughtered on the earth. After this, I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And again they shouted, Hallelujah. The smoke from her goes up for ever and ever. The 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God, who was seated on the throne. And they cried, Amen. Hallelujah. Morning, everyone. Please keep your Bibles open. Mammoth reading, Revelation 17 and 18, and four verses into 19. I'll lead us briefly in prayer. And uh, then we'll get stuck into it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you that you are the God who speaks to us in your word and you do so for our good, to build us up, to strengthen us, to bless us. Father, uh, we pray that uh, we take to heart uh, your word, your very powerful word this morning, uh, that we might uh, become more like our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Do you ever feel sorry for Lot's wife? I remind you of the story, in case you've forgotten, once upon a time, Lot, along with his uh, family, were living in the city of Sodom. The people of that city were so thoroughly sinful that even though Abraham had haggled with God to get him to agree not to destroy the city, if just 10 righteous people could be found there, God still had it earmarked for destruction. God's angels convinced Lot and Lot's family to flee And they had warned them to not even look back at the city of Sodom. But Lot's wife couldn't help herself. She looked back at her old city. And we're told that immediately she became a pillar of salt. It seems kind of harsh, kind of extreme, that God would end her life making her into a salt statue when all she did was to look back. She didn't even go back, she just looked back. So do you feel sorry for Lot's wife? Now, I raise this question because in Revelation chapters 17 and 18, we're looking at one particular area of the final judgment that God will bring about on the last day. And what we're being told is designed to ensure that we learn 
and share God's perspective on the object of his wrath, which from what I can gather is, is often difficult and is often dif- different to, to how we might naturally perceive and evaluate things. I know that to be true of myself. In Revelation, if you remember, we've been getting the view from heaven. God gives us a glimpse of the world as he sees it. And such information gives us a great blessing because it helps us become and remain prepared for what must soon take place. But of course, it can be also rather confronting, and that's especially the case today because we're focusing in only on the final judgment that will take place on the last day. See, earlier on in Revelation, we were shown how history is unfolding, symbolised with sets of seven things or events, you know, like seven seals or, or seven trumpets. The sixth event would always bring us up to the here and now, and so the seventh event describes what must soon take place, the final judgment. But uh, there's always been a delay between the sixth and the seventh. God, in his mercy, is stalling the final judgment, like we saw those angels holding back the winds. Uh, He's holding it off, giving time for more people to hear the good news of Jesus and repent and and therefore be rescued from the coming wrath. But then, as the book of Revelation progresses, we end up learning about the final judgment itself. And again, the way God teaches us is by giving us sets of seven symbolic events to paint the picture for the final judgment, Uh, to spell out a bunch of facets of what God's final judgment will look like, uh, what it will mean for both the forgiven and those who who are unrepentant. The turning point came in uh, chapter 15 and verse 1, and I bring this to your attention because I didn't actually preach on this, but uh, in 15 verse 1, when the seven bowls of God's wrath are described as being last, last, unlike the the, the seven things that came beforehand, because they are concerned just with the final judgment. With them, God's wrath is completed. We've moved from past and present into near future in the book of Revelation. So in chapter 15, God's people in heaven rejoice that the final judgment has come at last. And in chapter 16, as uh, Gav brought to us last week, we see the terrible unfolding of God's wrath as his enemies enter their eternal destiny, still stubbornly unrepentant. But as has been the case with the other series of seven things that we've seen, here again, for the final judgment itself, we're given another camera angle, and this time, it's a zoom-in. When God finally judges the world once and for all, of the many people and institutions that will suffer eternal destruction, there's one thing in particular that God really wants his people to know about, to take notice of. Chapter 17 and verse 1, one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, come, I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits by many waters. And there are all sorts of ways that the Bible categorises people or institutions that will face the punishment of God on the last day. The obvious one is that anyone who doesn't acknowledge Jesus as Lord and Saviour will be punished. But the Bible would also specify, for example, those who practice witchcraft, 
uh, who will be condemned on the last day. It specifies false teachers will be condemned on the last day. It specifies the cowardly in, uh, later in Revelation as those who won't stand on the last day. There's all sorts of ways you can categorise uh, the people under the judgment. But here, God wants us to notice the punishment of the great prostitute. We learn a few, uh, in a few verses' time that the great prostitute is Babylon, which is another way of saying she's a personification of all human, political and religious authority that offers luxury and comfort and security in this world and, of course, all the while being in complete opposition to the true and living God. It's the result of sinful humanity en masse creating a self-sufficient culture that boasts luxury and security for all those who invest in it. That's why Babylon comes from the word Babel. It's like the Tower of Babel on, on steroids. And, frankly, Western materialism is a pretty good example of it. It's driven by greed and idolatry. It looks for security in this world. It's what undergirds the thinking and activity of most Australians. It's the world that has declared independence from God and says, we're fine as we are, look at all our luxury and our security and our self-sufficiency. Verse 2, with her, with this prostitute, uh, uh, symbolising uh, Babylon, with her the kings of the earth committed adultery and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. Now, generally speaking, we know this already, power and wealth corrupt, and everybody wants power and wealth to ensure their security. Hence, the rulers are those who are figuratively committing adultery with a Babylonian prostitute, and everyone else is striving to do likewise, getting drunk on, a, on, on the wine of her adulteries. But God wants John, his servant, and therefore he wants us to look even more closely still. So verse 3, And the angel of the Lord carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. Let's step outside where you are currently, John, and, and, and see things from a, a broad perspective. There, I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads, heads and ten horns. That is, of course, Satan as the beast we saw back in chapters uh, 12 and 13. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet, i.e. she's got the royal clothes, the the expensive stuff with glittering gold, precious stones and pearls. She's rich. She held a golden cup in her hand, filled with abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. The name written on her forehead was a mystery, or not much of a mystery really, Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of the abominations of the earth. You wouldn't want that on your headstone, would you? Wow. By the way, King James, even more hardcore. She's called the whore of Babylon with whom people fornicate. King James, man, doesn't hold back. The society and culture of sinful humanity in its self-sufficiency, in its declaration of independence from God, is not only a great prostitute, but the mother of prostitutes and abominations. Why does God use such morally reprehensible imagery to describe the society and culture of sinful humanity's defiant rule? Well, of course, the answer comes in the next verse, verse 6. I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of God's holy people. And who are God's holy people? Well, the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. If you're God's holy people, you bear testimony to Jesus. 
Now, the one thing that sinful human society and culture can never abide is the people within it who reject its fundamental basis. Followers of Jesus recognise that we are dependent upon God and therefore we can never truly fit in with any culture because by definition all human culture expresses itself as being independent from God. Therefore, the persecution of Christians, especially under the power of both political and religious movements, is a constant in our fallen world and will continue to be so until Christ returns. One of the scariest things about this figurative uh, woman is that she's alluring and attractive. We feel the great pull of materialism and worldliness, of looking for security in this world. Verse 6b, when I saw her, I was greatly astonished. Which, if you look at some other translations, you realise it's actually a positive thing. I wondered with admiration. She looks good. I want this. I want the security, the wealth, the luxury that this world in its defiance of God is able to offer me. Verse 7, continuing, Then the angel said to me, Why are you astonished? Settle down there, mate. I will explain to you the mystery of the woman and, by the way, the beast she rides, which has the seven heads and ten horns. <clears throat> you know, you remember Satan from Revelation 13? The beast which you saw once was and now is not and yet will come out of the abyss to go to its destruction. Just in case you forgot, John, it's Satan. The inhabitants of the earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the creation of the world they're the ones who are going to be astonished when they see the beast because it once was, now he's not and yet will come, just in case you forgot, it's Satan. Put this simply, God's saying, hey, John, I know that woman looks alluring, but not only is she to be regarded, morally speaking, as the filthy prostitute who has murdered the children of God, that is your brothers and sisters, not only is she the mother of prostitutes because she makes all her clients as morally corrupt as she is, but even worse than that, the thing that drives her and gives her power, the thing she rides upon, is Satan, the furious dragon who's soon to be destroyed and who therefore created the beast that allures people to worldliness and power through religious and political means. And he does that whilst they're on their way with him to hell. So John, verse 9, this calls for mind with wisdom. Don't be enticed, John. Don't be fooled. Don't get sucked in to the worldliness, the materialism, the false religion, which includes atheistic materialism, as well as obviously all the prosperity teachings that you can get from almost anywhere that aim for comfort and security in this world. In the end, it is all idolatry. Verse 9b, the seven heads are the seven hills on which the woman sits. And everyone in ancient Israel knows that idolatry takes place where? On the high places, the hills. If it's promising power and wealth and luxury and security in this world, yeah, it's a form of idolatry. But not only is it religious corruption, but also political corruption that this prostitute, under her satanic influence, uses to allure people away from the truth. Verse 10 they are also 
seven kings, not just high places for idolatry, but kings where we're on political power. Five have fallen, one is, the other has not yet come, but when he does come, he must remain only for a little while. See, well, they're doomed to fail as well. Like all human power and rule, its time is limited. As a matter of fact, theologically speaking, we're near the end of all human rule. The next person to rise to power could just as easily be the last before Jesus returns. And Satan will seek to exert his influence through rulers as much as he can in the lead-up to that day. So verse 11, the beast who once was and now is not is an eighth king, which we're all thinking, thinking to ourselves, well, that's silly because the symbolism in Revelation means you can't have an eighth king, seven is complete, uh, which is why we're immediately told he belongs to the seven and he's going to destruction. And you go, oh, I see, it's a simple point. It's, it's that there's an addition to the human rule within Babylon. There's a satanic undercurrent. The beast is at work through the political machine. And this will continue to be the case until Jesus returns. Jesus himself told us all this stuff. Nation will rise against nation. Kingdom will rise against kingdom. This is the normal pattern of things until he returns. And so, verse 12, the ten horns you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but who for one hour will receive authority as kings along with the beast, nation rising against nation. Verse 13, in the end, though, they have one purpose and will give their power and authority to the beast. So just like it is with worldly religious authority, so it is with worldly political power. In the end, the things that offer security, peace, luxury in this world are serving the devil and they comfort unbelievers on their way to hell. John's job and our job is to not be sucked into the system because that system is soon to be completely destroyed. Verse 14, they will wage war against the lamb, but the lamb will triumph over them because he is Lord of Lord and King of Kings. With him will be his called, chosen and faithful followers. Friends, don't think that the big city of human achievement and wealth will last forever. Jesus will destroy it when he returns and when he does, his faithful followers won't be in that symbolic city. They'll be with Jesus. And don't think for a second that because the political and religious regimes of this world are held up by Satan, that he actually does anything good for the people within them. No, no, no. The devil hates the prostitute and knows that the system he upholds is futile and destructive. Worldly power never ultimately satisfies. Worldly wealth and security never ultimately satisfy, which is why you hear all those lottery winners with terrible lives. It only destroys people, because that's what the devil wants, of course. Verse 15, the angel said to me, the waters you saw where the prostitute sits, people, multitudes, nations and language, the beasts and the ten horns you saw will hate those people. It'll hate the prostitute. They will bring her to ruin and leave her naked. They will eat her flesh and burn her with fire. And the fact that that happens is actually all part of God's judgment 
on people who presumptuously seek to live in independence and therefore defiance of him. Hence, verse 17, for God has put it into their hearts to accomplish his purpose by agreeing to hand over to the beast their royal authority until God's words are fulfilled. The woman you saw is the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. The religious and political systems that function as if comfort and security in this world are of paramount importance are part of God's judgment upon the sinful people who create them. What a happy little ditty we're riffing on this morning, eh? There's more. So, it's obvious that whilst Christians must inhabit this fallen world here and now, we must never be enticed into its mainstream, idolatrous and materialistic philosophy. To put it really simply, Christians must be in the world, but not of the world. There you go. And so God calls us out from this Babylon. First of all, he reminds us that she is doomed to destruction, in case you hadn't picked up on that already, and that she is to be regarded with nothing less than disgust. From 18 and verse 1, After this I saw another angel coming down from heaven. He had great authority and the earth was illuminated by his splendour. Could be the angel of Jesus that we saw in uh, chapter 10. Who knows? Verse 2, with a mighty voice he shouted, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She's become a dwelling for demons and a haunt for every impure spirit, things that as Christians we're to, to loathe, to detest, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable animal. For all the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries. The kings of the earth committed adultery with her and the merchants of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries. Christians are to regard worldliness with disgust. We are to see it as unclean in much the same way that God's ancient people, Israel, were commanded to regard the unkosher food as unclean. Don't touch. In our sinfulness, that's really hard. Because we find wealth and power and security so enticing. I know I do. Just like the kings and the merchants who benefited from her sinful independence. I want the wealth, I want the security, I want the stability in this world. It's hard for me to regard it with disgust. Though, being transformed by the renewal of our minds is helped along by the knowledge that she will come to nothing, she will be completely destroyed. One of the reasons God has given us the close-up of the prostitute's punishment, verse 1 of 17, is to help us learn to feel that we want to distance ourselves from her. Hence, the urgent plea in verse 4, then I heard another voice from heaven say, come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues for her sins are piled up to heaven and God has remembered her crimes. If you're a Christian, do not be sucked in to the security, the wealth that the world promises. 
It is not true wealth. It is not true security. Owning your own home might be the great Australian dream. It is not the Christian dream. Having the overseas holiday might seem the rite of passage for the young and the middle class, but it is not a Christian rite of passage. Our world might insist that getting as much sexual satisfaction with people, either real or on the internet, is an excellent way to live, but it's the way the citizens of Babylon live, like the citizens of Sodom before them lived. And here's what will become of that system and of that city. Verse 6. Give back to her as she has given. Pay her back double for what she has done. Pour her a double portion from her own cup. Give her as much torment and grief as the glory and luxury she gave herself. In her heart, she boasts, I sit enthroned as a queen. I'm not a widow. I will never mourn. I I do not need God. I'm quite okay without him. Thank you very much. Therefore, verse 8, in one day her plagues will overtake her death, mourning and famine. She'll be consumed by fire, for mighty is the Lord God who judges her. I want a quick and helpful little method to apply this part of God's word really easily right now. Yeah, good, so do I. Whenever you get a new house or a new car or a photo of that overseas destination you'd like to go to or a new piece of furniture or anything that promises peace and security and happiness in this world, get a texter. I know someone who does this, right? Get a texter and just write on it, to be burned. I was going to do that for you this week, but I never got around to it. Well, my new Ormsby guitar, the guitar that I really love, was to put the sticker on it. But then Stacey said to me, but you might have to resell it one day. I was like, gee, look at the irony of that. Like I'm entering into the trade of Babylon. <laughs> anyway, just to remind you that in Christ, our treasure is in heaven. We follow a leader who had no place to lay his head and whose kingdom is not of this world. Who told us that you've got to be careful where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, that you, sh- you, you can't have your heart there, you shouldn't put your heart there. Don't do it. To be burnt. Great little application. But there's an even better idea to apply this part of God's word. It's way better because it's God's idea. Uh, God's idea is that we call to mind how sad and pathetic it will be for the people who benefited from the whore of Babylon when she's destroyed. And be appalled, says God, and sobered by the misplaced trust that you see in them. Uh, Verse 9, when the kings of the earth who committed adultery with her and shared her luxury see the smoke of her burning, which harks back to hell in verse 14, the smoke that goes forever and ever, they will repent and say oh my goodness we were so stupid what were we thinking though they will weep and mourn over her terrified at her torment rightly so they will stand far off and cry woe woe to you great city you mighty city they still call it mighty of Babylon in one hour your doom has come wow isn't that incredible mighty city one hour your doom has come in the same breath the merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her because no one buys their cargoes anymore. They thought they were getting rich. Cargoes of gold, silver, precious stones and pearls. Oh, look at it all. Fine linen, purple, silk, scarlet cloth, every sort of citron, wood and articles of every kind made of ivory, costly wood, bronze, iron and marble, cargoes of cinnamon and spice, of incense, myrrh, frankincense, of wine and olive oil, of fine flour and wheat, cattle and sheep, horses, carriage. You get the picture, don't you? It's made, designed for you to go, oh my goodness, how pathetic is this? They list off all the wonderful things. 
If this were written today, it would say, the designer and the brand name clothes, the perfect furniture and the decor, and the perfect houses with designer kitchens, the overseas holidays, the luxury resorts, the stylish cars, the latest phones, the technology, the Bitcoin, the insurance policy, the retirement plan, anything this world puts forth as something that grants you ultimate happiness and security independently from knowing the eternal God through Jesus. It's all going to go. And the plight of those who invested in worldly wealth, the people who had their heart here in Babylon rather than their treasure in heaven, it's going to be so hopeless, so sad and so pathetic. And God wants us to see this with painful clarity. Verse 14, they will say, the fruit you longed for is gone from you. All your luxury and splendor have vanished. Never to be recovered. The merchants who sold these things and gained their wealth from her will stand far off, terrified at her torment. People who have invested in the luxury, people who have found their identity and security in the things of this world and what it can provide, it's going to be a terrible day for them when they realise that it was all for naught. Second half of 15. They will weep and mourn and cry out, Woe, woe to you, great city, dressed in fine linen, purple and scarlet, and glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. In one hour, such great wealth has been brought to ruin. And to highlight the tragedy of people who embraced worldliness even more, God bombards them with yet another woeful angle, the most far-out angle you can get, but just to make it feel so comprehensive. Continuing from verse 17... Every sea captain, who by definition is about as far away from the city as you can be, who travel by ship, the sailors, all who earn their living from the sea will stand far off. When they see the smoke of her burning, in other words, her destruction is so great that even from the sea you can witness it, they will exclaim, we were really stupid, what were we thinking? No, they will exclaim, was there ever a city like this great city? Can you see the patheticness of it? They will throw dust on their heads with weeping and mourning and cry out, woe, woe to you, great city, where all who had ships on the sea became rich through her wealth. In one hour she's been brought to ruin. It's both terrible and pathetic. Are you invested in the things of this world? How enticed and allured are you by the great city? the wealth, the power, the security, the so-called finer things in life, are you? When you hang out with those non-Christian friends who, don't, uh, who, who have nicer things than, than you do, have you ever had that spiteful thought, well, they don't give any of their money towards the spread of the gospel? I've had that thought. We need to constantly come back to the word of God. Do you trust God? when he tells you over and over again that the whore of Babylon will be destroyed. That it really is worth clinging to Jesus, even though we miss out on the fleeting luxuries that she promises us. Do I trust God when he tells me that the right way to regard her is with disgust? Or do I secretly lust after her? Our loving Heavenly Father who knows what is best for us 
is saying to us this morning, come out of her, my people. And be assured that for those who have not invested in the things of this world, for those, in other words, who have clung to Christ, there will be the opposite of pathetic hopelessness. There will be rejoicing at the time of God's judgment. Verse 20, rejoice over her, you heavens. Rejoice, you people of God. Rejoice, apostles and prophets, for God has judged her with the judgment she imposed on you. All throughout Revelation, you'll notice, and really all throughout the Bible, there's never anything in between. Either you're devastated because you've thrown your lot in with this perishing world, or else you're elated because God's kingdom, the kingdom you've been a part of ever since the day you trusted in Jesus, comes in its fullness. One of the worst and hardest things about being a Christian in 21st century Australia, right here in Harrington Park and around, is that we try so desperately to stay in between. We try so desperately to have the luxury and comfort of this world, even though our Lord had no place to lay his head and nor will his followers, whilst still trying to live for him in the, in the age to come. And the antidote is, of course, exactly what God gives us in his word. Get it drummed into you again and again. This Babylon we inhabit will fail. It will be destroyed and prove to be ultimately good for nothing. Verse 21, then a mighty angel picked up a boulder the size of a millstone and threw it into the sea and said, with such violence, the great city of Babylon will be thrown down never to be found again. The music of harpers and musicians, pipers and trumpeters will never be heard in you again. No worker of any trade will ever be found in you again. The sound of a millstone will never be heard in you again. The light of a lamp will never shine in you again. The voice of the bridegroom and bride will never be heard in you again. Your merchants were the world's important people. By your magic spell, all the nations were led astray. In her was found the blood of the prophets and of God's holy people, all who have been slaughtered on the earth. This ought to help us Get away from the allure of the great prostitute. She's responsible for the death of our brothers and sisters. In the end, if we're investing in her, we're siding with the political and religious institutions that kill God's children. In fact, we're siding with the political and religious institutions that killed God's one and only son. Precisely so that rebellious, self-sufficient sinners like us could come out of her. Finding your security and identity in the things of this world is siding with the enemy. It leads only to despair, if not here and now, definitely on that last day. If you want to really have life, if you want to have life to the full, you know what you've got to do? Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow Jesus into eternity. What good is it to gain even the whole world but to forfeit your soul? So come out of her, my people. Remember that the day will come when we'll rejoice, not because we've enjoyed the wealth and the comforts on offer in Babylon, but because God in his perfect righteous justice has condemned her for eternity, chapter 19, verse 1, and I'm overlapping with what I'm going to preach on next week because this is where I start, but just dip into it for a second. 
After this, I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah. Praise God. That's what hallelujah means. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And again they shouted hallelujah. The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. The 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne and they cried, Amen, Hallelujah. We say Hallelujah to the judgment that God brings out upon his enemies. From where I stand currently, this seems like it might be a hard Hallelujah to say. I know that his judgment is final, it results in hell. But I know that by the grace of God, I will say it. I know that as I keep trusting in Jesus, I'll continually learn to find my contentment and security in him, not in the things of this world, which is heading for destruction. I hope and trust it's the same for all of you too. But in case it's not, well, one possible reason might be is that you've never truly said no to the world. For you, the implication would be really obvious. Come out of her before it's too late, lest you share in her punishment. You see, you can't say yes to Jesus without saying no to this world that crucified him. I know that this Babylon we live in is so tempting. The financial security, the house, the car, the holidays, the gadgets, many of them very good things within themselves. I have lots of them. But nonetheless, things that Satan uses to set up people to find their security and identity in here. The day will come when people have found their identity in Babylon more than they have in Christ, will be swept away with the rest of the city. For in the end, they are siding with a satanic institution that stands responsible for the blood of the prophets and God's holy people. Indeed, whilst pretending to follow Jesus Christ himself, they have sided with the political and false religious machines that murdered him. Don't throw your lot in with this world. Throw your lot in with Jesus. Turn and put your trust in him as Lord and Saviour before it's too late. It's the only way you'll be saved on the last day. It's the only way to find true joy and satisfaction. For those of us already saved, let's keep training our brains. It calls for a mind with wisdom. Keep transforming uh, that stuff between the ears. Reminding ourselves to stay away from the brothel of worldly wealth and false security. It's this wonderful... um, Christian minister, a guy named uh, Luther, who planted a church not far from here, Leppington. It's, uh, what's it called? Hope? Hope? Yep. Uh, when they were getting their core team together, the criteria was that people who were going to join the core team, uh, if they were from, weren't in the suburb, which was all of them, they would have to sell their house and move into the suburb and purchase in there so they could live there and be there. You weren't going to do that? Not interested. I think that's brilliant. If I was going to plant a church, that's, that's what I would have in mind. Uh, and second of all, don't look back when you've, caught, when, when you've answered the call, when you've, you've thrown your lot in with Jesus rather than this world. And you'll see that I've written the little words after it on account of heinous sin because I, in my experience, something that actually makes Christians want to turn back is when we've sinned so badly we feel unworthy of God and his people. Uh, the day may well come where you, you stuff up majorly. Uh, don't let that be the thing that says, well, it's better in Babylon than in the kingdom of God. Um, 
Because the God who has the power to destroy the whore of Babylon most certainly has the power by the blood of Christ to forgive the most heinous sin. The power God will exert when he exercises his terrifying judgment is not even as much power as he exerted when he made the way for sinners like us to be forgiven and to come out of her. Final thing I'm going to say, Luke chapter 17, verse 30. When that terrible day does come, it will be just like this on the day the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, no one who is in his housetop with possessions inside should go down to get them. Likewise, no one in the field should go back for anything. Remember Lot's wife. Whether or not we should feel sorry for her is not as important as whether or not we remember that just the, the, the glance back, the little expression of, I want to go back, no, don't be, don't be Lot's wife. Verse 33, whoever tries to keep their life will lose it. And whoever loses their lives will preserve it. I tell you, and that night two people will be in one bed. One will be taken, the other left. Make sure you're the one taken. Two women will be grinding grain together, one will be taken, the other left. Make sure you're the taken one. Don't throw your lot in with this world. I've said this before, I'll say it again. It's a common pattern of Christians to put Christian ministry and service and, and community fairly low on the list. I want to get a really good house in a suburb that I really like. Therefore, I need to get a really good job and therefore, I need to get a good education. So I go, good education, good job, find the house, find the suburb, get the biggest mortgage I can. And once that's all in place, I'll look around for a church that I can be a part of. No. Here's the way to do it. Where's the church that I can serve really well at? And where's the community? Okay, what kind of house do I need to live there to make that convenient? What kind of job do I need in order to get that house? And what kind of education do I need to get that job? Now, obviously, it's way oversimplified and it's, you know, there's way more complexity than that. But you see the point it makes, don't you? Do you live for this world or do you live for Jesus? Let me conclude in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the stark and dire warning you give us about the, the coming doom of the great prostitute of Babylon. Father, we're sorry for the way that we so easily get allured by her charms, by the materialism, by the wealth, by the security, the things of this world that in the end are idolatrous, that in the end are things Satan uses to turn us aside. Father, thank you so much for the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ that has saved us. Thank you that the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ has meant we're called out of this world. Father, please help us to transform our minds, renew our minds by remembering over and over that she will be destroyed and that we need to throw our lot in with Jesus rather than with this world. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.